All right, all right. Real quick before we get started and jump in, I um, forgot to mention, I forgot to say, wanted to just um, let you know real fast. Uh, Eric's not with us this morning, as you could tell. Um, he is actually in Myrtle Beach with his daughter uh, on a volleyball trip. Um, they, uh, her, I think her school's playing uh, in Myrtle Beach in a tournament, and Catherine was going to go, um, but ended up not getting to go, and so Eric went. And so um, she told me uh, t- this weekend that I, that I could let everyone know that we just need to be praying for uh, Catherine's mom as she has been diagnosed with cancer. Um, and the outcome is not looking good. So, um, church, we just, if you would, and I know it's not on the list yet, we'll, we'll get that on that prayer list that's out there in the lobby, but um, if you would just be praying. And so Catherine's mom had her birthday this weekend. Uh, that's when all the family could get together. Uh, and so if you, if you would, like I said, just be lifting that family up uh, in prayer. Her mom's a strong, strong believer, godly woman. Um, uh, but so, man, there, there's just a lot of hurt there. And, um, and so just if you would, like I said, just and, and shoot them a text. Encourage them when you think of it. Uh, shoot them a text. I'm like, hey, praying for you, love you, um, th- those type of things. But if, if you would join me as a church, we'll just we'll pray for her. I want to do it right now even. Let's just stop in this moment and allow um, just our our cry to God to be made known. So if you join me as we just pray, uh, again, very safe travel back with his daughter as he got to spend a good weekend with, with his uh, little girl as she played volleyball and then just for, for Catherine and, and that family. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, God, we just want to, uh, God, just be aware of the needs of our people. And Lord, I know that that list out there, we've got tons of other in this church that are hurting, that are battling cancer, uh, that have just got a lot of stuff going on, recovering from COVID or whatever the case may be. Father, we just pray in this moment, you would move in a mighty way for those people's names on that list, God, but also right now in particular for Catherine's mama. Father God, that you would just step in like only you can, wrap your arms around that family, love on them like only you can. Father, we ask God just for safe travel as Eric uh, heads back today with his daughter, God. I pray that for a good weekend there, God, and just even for Catherine and her family, God, as, as they uh, just get to just uh, soak up these days they have left. And so, Father, again, I just, I just pray right now God, for your mercy and for your grace to just be poured out upon that family. And God, be for them everything they need right now. God, I can't even imagine or even, even know what to even pray in this moment, Father, but we know that, that, that we've got your son making intercession for us, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, God, just even, even interpreting for us and helping us in this moment. So Father, I just pray right now in this moment, God, that you would just move like only you can. I feel like, God, may they know that they're loved here, that we, uh, we thank the world of them. And, and God, just when, when, when our family hurts, God, we all hurt. And so, God, I just pray in this moment you'd make your presence known in their life. And then we pray. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, you can grab those. John chapter 1 is where we're going to be. John 1, 17. Um, and that's, that's our verse this morning. Uh, and so, uh, just, just buckle up, get ready. We'll be um, finishing up chapter 1 uh, this morning. And so, if you have the app, you can follow along there. If you go to worship and then sermon notes. Um, some, there's going to be some other scriptures we're going to kind of reference and look at uh, that won't be on the screen, but they'll be on that app. So, if you want to go back, you can go back and look at that or you can have that with you uh, this morning. But Jonah chapter 1, uh, verse 7. And just to kind of catch us up, recap a little bit. Last week, we just looked at the fact that sin reeks, uh, that sin is going to be made known, that our God is gracious and loving enough to let our sin be exposed um, and allow us to get caught in our sin. I mean, he loves us far too much to leave us uh, where he found us. And so I made the statement last week that we had better get a hold or a grip of our sin before our sin gets a hold or a grip of us. And what I mean by that is this, is that we need to kill it. The way that we handle sin is we don't lock it up for a season or we don't do things like that. But what we do is we kill it. We crucify. Uh, the old man is dying. That's what we need to do. We need to crucify the old man so that we can live as the new man in Christ. And so that was point one. Uh, last week, point two was this, the true repentance versus worldly sorrow as it would appear that maybe in this moment in Jonah's life, uh, there hasn't really been true repentance and only time will tell and we'll see uh, as things continue to unfold uh, in this story. But all of that was last week. We don't have time to really go back anymore, um, but you can catch up there on our webpage or, or on our app. And so uh, this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of the most scrutinized scriptures in all the Bible. One of the most scrutinized and controversial uh, scriptures as it appears in, in all of the scriptures. And so it's been said that if this verse, the verse that we're going to look at and that we're going to read, that we're going to spend the next 30 to 40 minutes talking about, that if this verse would be taken out of the Bible, then Jonah would be a very believable story. It would be a story that we could get on board with. It would be a story that would be, okay, that's a good story. That's a cool story. Uh, but because of this one verse, there's a lot of scrutiny that comes to this, this, whole, this whole book, this whole prophet. And it's this one verse. And I just, I just want to press us this morning, church, because that is a very dangerous place to be if we go picking and choosing what verses we think uh, or we like that should be there or shouldn't be there. 
That is a very dangerous place to believe or to be or to land or to even look at, to try to uh, go down that road and think, well, I don't like, really like this one or this one just doesn't make much sense to me or, or this one isn't as, as good as what I think it should be and so I'm just going to uh, negate it. I'm going to throw it out. It's a very, very slippery slope to find yourself on if you land at that place. So I'm just going to right out of the gate let you know where we stand as a church. That lets you know right up front everything uh, that we believe as it pertains to God's word. We believe it to be the very word of God. That the Bible is the word of God. That this Bible right here, this book right here claims to be the inspired word of God. This is God speaking to this fallen creation. To these fallen people, us. This is what it is. Look look at this. This is what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. It says this. It says that all scripture. How much scripture? How much scripture, church? The Bible says through Timothy that, that all scripture... As Paul pins that letter to Timothy, he reminds him, Paul, or Timothy, all scripture, every ounce of it. So Jonah 1.17, inspired by God, because he says that it is breathed out by God, and then he tells us what the scriptures are good for, that they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so since we know that God does not lie or make mistakes, we say then that the Bible doesn't lie. That the Bible has no mistakes. And so for us as a church here in this place, this is what we believe. That we believe that the Bible is inerrant. And that it means that the biblical authors with God as their God do not teach anything false or command anything as God's will that is displeasing to God. That they don't teach anything false. That they don't tell us or instruct us or direct us into anything that is anti-God or, or goes against God's nature or character. And so what the authors intended for us to understand or obey in its context is absolutely true. It's absolutely, utterly true. God's holy inspired word as we have it is not misleading, is not errant, and is in no way, shape, or form false. That's what we believe in this church. That's where we put a stake in the ground and we stand firm on. So as I was uh, just reading last night a little bit and looking through some stuff last night, it's, it's funny how God kind of just sets things up and does some stuff. And so I'm sitting there kind of just flipping through and I come across this heading on, on Facebook. And so I click on it because it really uh, just captures my attention, especially with where we're going to be this morning and knowing how there's a lot of scrutiny around scriptures and a lot of scrutiny around the inerrancy of the word. And so um, as I'm flipping and looking, the, the headline read, uh, Church in uh, Nashville, Tennessee claims the word has error, claims that there's fallacies and falsehoods in the world, or in the word, and so what do I do? I click on it because like, I'm engaged now. Like, I'm like, I'm about to tackle this. Like, I want to see what this fool talking about. So I click on it, and I begin to read, and I kind of just skimmed through it a little bit, kind of looked at it, like, okay, this will be good. I want to take it to my people. I want you to hear some of the stuff that's being said from what would be considered a, a, a church of Jesus, and so I just want to just share with you a little bit uh, of what's said in this article. Um, and, and so I read last night, and I was like, okay, whatever. And then, and th- as, as I guess I had time to just kind of think on it, I read through it again, and I just highlighted some stuff, like what I really want to push on on this morning here for a moment, and what what I want to say, and what I want to do for just just a second here. Um, and, and the more that I read it this morning, and the more frustrated I got, the more ticked off I got the more aggravated I got that that this fool would stand in the pulpit and have the audacity to look at a group of people that he shepherds, that that God has put him over. And I pray that God does something with this, with him. And I'll get to that in a minute. But but the fact that he would stand in front of people and and lead them astray this way. And I know you're like, Scott, that's that's, that's pretty kind of, I mean, you're going to call the brother out? Well, one, I don't know if he's a brother. So we just need to make, make clarity there. And, and two, absolutely. Well, that's not very gracious. That's not very loving. If the man's going to stand and claim the name of Jesus, then, then he's going to be called out. Church, church, we are called to go after wolves. We are called to expose that junk. And so false prophets, I don't know how well you've read the scriptures, but, but you see that all through Paul's writing as he warns the churches, be ready. There's going to be some that's going to slip in, that's going to appear to be in sheep's clothing, but they're going to be wolves to devour you. I mean, false doctrine and false teaching is everywhere. And so this fool, this brother stood up, like a brother, this fool, I'm just going to use that word, this fool stood up and said this to his congregation last week, two weeks ago, I think. He says, as progressive Christians, and I'm just going to stop right there. Because if you have to put any kind of word in front of Christian, then you're probably not Christian. Uh, 
Because Christian is enough. That defines who we are. Progressive. What do you mean? Everything's been progressed. Jesus has died on the cross. He has rose again. And he has given us his word and his direction of what we're to be about and what we're to do. There's no more progressing. No. So as... This is supposed to go about 30, 40 minutes. You be careful. We'll go an hour and a half if we're not careful. Help me, brother. Okay, so as progressive, progressive Christians, we're open to the tensions and inconsistencies in the Bible. No. As Christians, we're open to tensions because there's some tensions and what the tension always lands upon is us, our heart, our lack of understanding. As we see things, as we understand with our limited scope of of knowledge and understanding, the scripture says we see dimly now. So absolutely, we're going to struggle with tensions in the scripture, things that don't make sense on our side. But trust me, church, on eternity's side, everything makes perfect sense. So anyways, so this is what this guy said. As progressive Christians, we're open to the tensions and inconsistencies in the Bible. We know that it can't live up to impossible modern standards. Well, brother, the problem is this, is if your standard is within the world and the culture and where it's at, I mean, can we just rewind to the 80s when we thought that it would be cool and great for everybody to wear spandex? I mean, dear God, help us. Like, if you ever go to your closet and spandex is an option, nix that. I'm just going to love you enough to tell you this morning, spandex is never a good option for you, for any of us. I mean, my word. So we're going to let culture and we're going to let our day dictate what the word says and what the word can handle or not handle? So he says that we strive to more clearly articulate what scripture is and isn't. The church noted before stating what the Bible is and isn't. So that's just kind of his intro right there. And then he says this. He says, the Bible, the church said, isn't the word of God. I just read that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And that's Paul writing to Timothy. I don't know what this brother knows or what he's been through, but if I'm going to have to err on the side of one or the other, I'm taking the Apostle Paul all day long. Okay. So the Bible, the church said, isn't the Word of God self-interpreting, a science book, an answer, a rule book, an inerrant or infallible? So they say that it's not any of that stuff, which we believe the opposite that it is. He says, and then it just gets more dumber, stupider, whatever. I know, sorry, you're not supposed to say that, but... Hear me, y'all. Whenever somebody just... Anyways. Parents, I'm sorry. Rather, it is a product of community. A library of texts. A multi-vocal, a human response to God. Living and dynamic. A product of community. I'm going to talk about, like, like, anyways. He goes on, he says this. He says, ah. And this is, this is where this all stems. This is the problem. And, and you'll notice there's a lot of I and we. He says, I think one of the greatest challenges that happens with the Bible is we bring expectations to it that it just isn't intended to bear and can't bear. The Word of God can bear all things because that's the starting point for us, brother. It's not, it's not okay, this is where I'm at. This is my context. This is my, my setting. This is what's happening with me. And then I read back into the Bible. No, we start at the Scripture and then we get us. We don't start with us and then get back to the Scripture, we always read Scripture first and then us. I don't know why I'm preaching so hard at this, but... He says, because if we go to the Bible and we're looking for really up-to-date information on how the cosmos, is how the world works, we're not going to find it. Has he read the Bible? Is he familiar with the words that Jesus has spoken? Anyways... He says, ah, and there again, there it is. Ah, that's the problem, is that I don't think the Bible is a book trying to tell us how things change. I think the Bible is trying to say to us, why? The Bible isn't necessarily the source of the how. The Bible is the source of the why do we exist? Why is there a world? What it means to be human beings in this world? How do we live our lives in the best way possible? I think, brother, he's quit thinking. I think those are more of the questions the Bible is trying to get at. And I'm here to tell you, no, the Bible answers all the questions. Every question that we've got. That's the filter by which our whole lives and our whole beings is, is, is circumferenced in. Is the scriptures. 
And then he quotes even more, and this is what he says. He says, I actually want to try to help people hear the story of the Bible, hear the stories and letters and poems in a fresh way. Well, just read it, dude, and shut up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm not sorry, I guess. But a way that honors where that came from and the people that produced it. He noted while arguing that while parts of the Bible can be considered the Word of God, not all of it is. And my question is, then how in the heck do you know what is and what isn't? Is it what makes you feel fluffy and good in the moment? It, or, or is the stuff that's not inspired the stuff that, that calls you out in your sin and your junk and your, your, your struggles? I mean, I, mean, I want to see what his filter is. And then he pointed to Old Testament prophets like Amos and Jeremiah who would uh, preface messages from God with the Lord came to Amos or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And then this is where he gets really off. He says, there is stuff in there, the Bible, that I think really goes against the character of God. Well, it's apparent that he doesn't know the character and nature of God. And I know it's like, gosh, dude, like you're being like rough. Absolutely. If you look at how Jesus handled those who claimed to be a part of the religious community, who claimed to be a part of who he was and, and know who he was, Jesus spoke very directly to those people. Now, he showed grace and mercy to those who didn't know, to those who were outside of the fold. I mean, he was very patient and, and gentle in that, in that manner. But with those who claimed to be something, do, do, we're going we're gonna to do business now. So there's stuff in the Bible that I think really goes against the character of God. And then he, he's going to tell us what those are. There are genocides that have been divinely sanctioned in the Bible. People, and again, that, that's the problem. That's the problem. Right there when he says people. The way someone interprets it does not make the Bible. That, that's, our interpretation of it is not what settles it. What God said in that day to those people, that's what it means. And if there's a problem with that, the problem doesn't fall on God. The problem falls on man. The problem falls on me. And hear me, I want to stand up here and I want to be honest and open. There are things in the Bible that I struggle with and I don't like. And do you know what I do? I pray and I get my dang heart right is what I do. Because if there's going to be any error when it comes between God and between me, who's it going to fall on? It's going to fall on this dude. Uh, let me prove it to you real fast because this weekend we had the opportunity to take our boys Friday uh, afternoon. We left and we took them and we went snow tubing with them. First time they got to do that. It was really cool. So that I don't have a clue how to get to that mountain. So what do we do? We put it up on ways and it shows up on the screen. There are dang maps with a colored line that you just follow and she talks to you the whole time. And I still miss turns. I mean, how do you misinterpret that? I mean, she tells you, 300 feet, 200 feet, look, moron, turn around, turn around, turn around. I mean, how do you, there, and even there's a line right there that shows me, turn here, turn, ah, I missed it again. So if there's an error, the error is going to be on us, not God. He says, people have used the text in the Bible, plain readings of the text at times to support white supremacy, to defend slavery, to defend segregation. He noted saying the Bible is inerrant and if, saying the Bible is inerrant and infallible. It absolves us of our responsibility to do what our ancestors did, which is to wrestle. And I was like, no, it doesn't. Just, and I'm going to be really, again, very clear for you. Just because some fool can stand on a stage and say that slavery is okay, or say that racism is all right, that God was, is, is a moron, and it's not. They don't know the heart of God. Well, go back to the very beginning. We were created, what, in the image of God. In the very image of God, we were created. And, and to think that some baboon, buffoon could stand on a stage and tell people that it's okay to own someone else, or that it's okay to treat someone else because of the color of their skin, they need to be saved. And that is not a man of God articulating the word of God from the scriptures. If they can stand up here and they can say those things, that is anti-God is what that is. That is not the heart of God. If we're going to discriminate because of the color of someone's skin who we've already established in, in years past in this place, that we can't dictate what color our skin is. I mean, what kind of measuring stick is that? I mean, have we, have we not progressed past that foolishness yet? God help us. That we're going to allow that kind of nonsense to dictate, I mean, how we view another person by the color of their skin or by the job that they work or by the background that they've had. I mean, God help us if that's the case. And so just because people can stand on a stage and have a microphone and gather a crowd and say ridiculous foolishness, stuff like that, doesn't make it right in the Word of God. 
That's why I pray to God if I ever stand on the stage and I begin to talk that kind of nonsense, you, you stop it. You remove my butt. And you have a very intense, Matthew Lewis, you hear me? Tim Gibbs, you hear me? Dave, my trustee, I mean, I, I know that right there. Coop, I know you come at me. Scott, I know you'll tackle me. Good. All right. So that was the introduction. Oh. So now we believe that the word of God is inerrant, infallible, is perfect, right, and good. Exactly how God would want us to have it. Exactly how God would say that things really are. It, it approves of his behavior and his attitude and his will. I mean, get your head around this for just a moment. I mean, those, those who authored this, with, with God's help, there was kings, there was peasants, there was philosophers, there was fishermen, there was poets, doctors, there was, there was scholars. I mean, this book contains in it history, sermons, letters, songs, poetry, love letters, all as the way that God would intend it to be. And so this book that we have that we hold to be inerrant and infallible is, is written both by God and man, but it's not co-authored, church. God and man did not collaborate on what to write. No, no, no. People were providentially prepared by God and motivated and superseded by the Holy Spirit. And so what do they do? They, they write according to their own personalities and circumstances. How? In such a way that their words are the very word of God. And so we need not to flirt in the area of picking or choosing what is and what isn't right and what is good because of our preference or our comfort or because of our fear. We go to it and we ask God, we beg God to change our heart because we're the ones that's wicked and fallen. We're the ones that are in need of correction and rightness, and not God. So I believe for us as the people of God, the inerrancy of Scripture is a hill that we die on. It's not one of those open-handed things that's up for debate that we can discuss and that we can have fun little conversation around and debate for a while. No, no, it's closed-handed and it's a hill that we're willing to die on here at New Life. That we take serious the word of God and what he has said and what he has expected of us and what he has commanded of us. And if we can't trust all of scripture, how can we trust any? If we can't trust all of it, how can we trust any of it? If God's not powerful enough to preserve all that he needs to say to his people and his creation, then what are we to do? And so I just, I just want to share with you, just to equip us for a moment, just some of the variations in the scriptures. The majority of the variations in the scriptures have to do with spelling or stylistic changes such as adding a conjunction. That's it. That's, that's where, so John, instead of being J-O-H-N, it's just J-O-N. Does that make it not John? No. That's the majority of them. In the New Testament, we have 14,000 ancient copies with fragments no later than 100 years after the original books of the letters. 14,000 manuscripts, pieces of, the, of, of what we have as our scriptures, dating no later than, there is no other writing out there that has that many. Less than 1% of all the variations have nothing to do with doctrine, and no doctrine is affected by any of the variations. Less than 1%, less than 1%. We have so many manuscripts to check that we are virtually certain the text is over 99% of the Bible is faithful to the original manuscripts. Faithful. And so my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that God would just get us to a place where we can trust him no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. One, because I hope as you see, God is trustworthy. And he's going to speak to his people. He's going to come after his people. And he's going to make his word, his way, his will known to his people. And the second way that, that, that we can rest in that and, and find comfort and trust in him no matter the circumstances is because that he is sovereign. So I'm going to ask you if you'd pray with me. We'll cover this verse and then we'll storm hell with water pistols. Lord, help us this morning hear your word. God, help us to get fired up. God, help us to take serious what you have said and what you've commanded and what you've asked us to do and be. And Father, this one little verse that, that, that brings with it so much criticism and critique, God, I, I just pray, I just pray, Father, that if there be one here in this room this morning, God, that, that, that struggles with just the inerrancy of Scripture or struggles with how trustworthy it is or how reliable it is, Father, I pray that this morning as a result of some of the things that have been said in this room or as a result of what you're going to say and do, God, that, that there would be peace and that there would be a, a comfort in sliding into and, and understanding and realizing, God, how small and minute we are and how big and great you truly are. And Father, how crazy of it is it of us to think that you can't preserve anything that you want, however and whenever. So Father, I pray this morning you speak to the hearts of the people in this room. 
your name we pray. Amen. So Jonah 1.17, what we have is the sailors just finished hurling Jonah into the sea. And what we, what we see is that the storm stops, the water stops, everything stops immediately. And then Jonah 1.17 reads like this. And the Lord anointed. So what we have here is God in this moment, he has ordained or he has anointed. Uh, and this word here just points to the Lord's power to accomplish his will. It points to the reality that God can do whatever he needs to do. That he has a specific purpose here for the very thing that he's going to appoint. And that's what I love about God. I love about how intentional he is. I love how personal he is. I I love that fact that he speaks or that he does why to get our attention, to make us aware so that we will know. And so what we're about to see is God's power put on display in this very special ordained creature of the sea. And so as I was looking, as I was thinking, man, everything else on, on the earth has no problem submitting to God's authority and power, does it? I mean, what we've seen so far in the story is that the wind has stopped, that the sea quit, that the boat was, was ready to tear apart because of it, that, that the lots that were cast to determine who, who had the problem on the boat. And, and now what we're going to see is we're going to see the sea animal submit to God's authority. And so I would press us this morning that, that the, the redeemed, born-again people of God struggle mightily to obey and submit. I, I know that I do. And my fear is, is that we think that it's a kid thing, it's a, it's a childish thing to do to submit and to obey, and, and we're dignified adults, right? I mean, we're just dignified adults that have come to a place where we understand things and we see things different, and that God just needs to get with the program. And that's how you land it, where that poor person that said what he said two weeks ago landed. Let me just try to show you real fast. Paul here is talking to the church at Corinth who had some big time issues in the, in the church there. He's talking about some sexual sin. And, and, then, um, and, and then, then he says this, and I believe that this applies to us, that, that we can draw from this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And he says, you are not your own. You don't belong to you. We are owned. We don't belong to us is what Paul's telling the believers there, there at Corinth. It's not your body to do whatever you want to do with it. It's not your way to act however you want to act. That's not how it works. That if you belong to Jesus, that if you're saved, if you're redeemed, if you're born again, it's because you've been been bought with a price. You you aren't owned somebody. Jesus owns you. And he goes on, he says, for you were bought with a price. He's purchased us. We're owned. We are to do and be what the one who owns us says. And church, all I know is that the price that was offered for us was hefty. That if we could get all of our monies together, we could get all of our good deeds together in this place, we could get all of our uh, sweet stuff and sell it, we could get everything that we have and possess and that we have ever done, and we could lay it at the feet of Jesus, all of us cumulatively. And we could lay it at the feet of God and be like, okay, God, we're here. And he'd be like, depart from me, I never knew you. Because I've purchased and I've redeemed. And the way that I have done that is through my son, Jesus. And, and all I know is that all of our wealth, all of our good deeds, all of our stuff doesn't even come close to measuring up to what it would, what it would cost for us to be made right. So he says, you were bought with a price. He just reminds him there. You were bought with a price. You are an own somebody. There, there, was, there was a wage paid for you, and that wage is Jesus. He says, so as a result of that, this is what you're to do, church at Corinth. This is what we're to do, new life, is that we're to, to glorify God in our body. So as owned men and women, at all costs, we do whatever we have to do to bring glory and honor to God. As believers in Jesus, we belong to God. And one way that we glorify God is by doing what he says. Doing what he says, the way we talk, the way we act, the way we react, everything about us needs to be about showing how great and grand God is. That's what he tells the believers here at Corinth to do. So the Lord, he appointed a great fish to do what? To swallow up Jonah. And so we're not sure what kind of fish it is. I mean, you may have heard a whale, you may have heard of this. We, we don't know. We're uncertain what kind of fish it is. All we know is this, is that God provided one big enough to accomplish what God needed it to do. That if he got the fish just the right size, well, that's impossible. He can't do it. We're talking about God here. He just speaks and things happen. The storm just stopped because they threw the brother over in the sea and it quit. Who's in charge of that? God is. God just speaks and the world's created. That's the God we're talking about. That he provides. I don't know what kind of fish. I don't know how big. All I know is it's big enough for this boy to live in for a little while and be Okay. Well, that's impossible because there's acids in the stomach that start to break down the food immediately. 
which I would wholeheartedly agree with you with biologists, there is. Unless it's a God that, unless it's a fish that God ordained to take a boy to a land that he told him to go to. And what is he going to do? He's going to protect that boy in that fish's belly. That just happens to be the right size to get him to where he needs to be. That's it, man. That's right. And it was free of charge. What we see here, what we experience here is that God's sovereignty is the theme that drives the book of Jonah. I mean, all throughout it, you see his sovereignty. And I just, I just want to define, because I know for some of us that might be uh, kind of talk that makes us uncomfortable or makes us uneasy, but I just, I just want to just kind of just ease that for a moment. What I, what I mean when I say sovereignty is this, is that there's no limit to God's rule and reign. This is part of what it means to be God. That makes him God, that he's sovereign, that he's in control. He, he is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. God's never helpless. He's never frustrated. He's never at a loss. And, and I just want to, over the next few minutes, dial into the very voice of God, telling us specifically how strong he is, how powerful he is, and how universal his authority is. And may we just rest in the assurance that, that we are in the best place possible at all times. God being in complete control. At all times. With God guiding the ship. With God leading. And, and I know in a room this size, what that usually does is that usually causes some angst deep within the soul. Because, because we've lived life. We've been kicked in the teeth. We've been through difficult days. Angst of the soul is what I would call it. We've been through those horrific times in our life. And brother, I could sit around, we could, we could talk, I'm right there with you. I mean, I've been through some horrible stuff. I've seen some things that, that I don't agree with, that I don't like, that I'm not for, that, that, that God being sovereign and in control, he could have stopped, but for whatever reason, and, and um, his sovereignty and his might and his glory and his splendor and his all-knowingness allowed to happen. And so I wanna, we'll talk about that here in a few moments. We'll talk about that here in a few moments, about perspective, what I believe God's doing and why he allows but I just want you to listen for a minute. And this is where if you have the app, you can follow along. It's not going to be on the screens, but, but you can go back and visit it. I just, I just want to read these to you. And I, want to, I want you to hear. Just hear how God rules and how God reigns and what he does. He says this. The first thing I want to look, look at is this, is that all authority in the universe belongs to God. All authority in the universe belongs to God. Romans 13, 1 says this. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Ah. <sighs> Can we have another election? I'm going to go there for a second. Because what this says here is that every person is subject to the government authorities. That God's over that. That God's bigger than that. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So the authority in the world has what been instituted by God. God has allowed. God has put there. God has, has sovereignly allowed. Has he not? So regardless of who we voted for, what we know and what the scripture tells us, that we can rest easy and we can breathe. And what we're, we're a few months in almost now of this. And the world was ending and everything was going to, and, ah, looking good. Looking, uh, you look, <laughs> looking good. Why? Because God is in control. And our hope is not found in a man who can govern and can rule a land. Our hope is found in the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of the universe. John 19, 11 says it like this. Jesus answered him saying, you would have no authority over me at all. So he's telling those that's got him that you'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivers me over to you has the greatest in him. The only reason why you've got me is because my dad's let you. Because I've submitted to his plan and his way and his purpose. All authority in the universe belongs to God. God shares his rule and authority completely with his son. Look at Matthew 28, 18 says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority, how much authority? All authority, every ounce of authority, where in heaven and on earth. That means everywhere. All authority has been given to me is what Jesus says. John three thirty five says this, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. John 17, 2 says this, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom all you have given him. I mean, there is power and authority and control even with Jesus. The third thing is this is where we see his sovereignty at play. God appoints and removes rulers of the world. Listen, Daniel 2, 21, or 20 through 21 says this. It says that wisdom and might belongs to me. Who's me? Me is God there. That, that I change times and seasons. And thank God, right, I'm ready for some sun. I'm ready for some warmer weather. I mean, we in the south. 
50, I mean, I didn't, we're not here for the 50 degree weather. And what do we, we know, the days are getting longer, seasons are coming, it's about to get warmer, we're going to spend time outside. All of those things are coming. And who does that? Right here, right here, Daniel says, it's God. And he also says that I remove kings and set up kings. Acts 12, Acts 12, 23 says this, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Dang. That's New Testament. Like, we like, we think God's cranky in the Old Testament. Struck, struck a brother down because he didn't give him glory. God help us. It says, and he was eaten by the worms and breathed his last. See, see God appoints and removes as he sees fit. God governs all rulers. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. So I don't care who sits behind a desk and gets to make all the calls. God can turn and do wherever he wills, whenever he sees fit. Isaiah 14, 24 says this, The Lord of hosts has sworn. So this is God. God swears. And when God says something, he doesn't just half-heartedly say it or haphazardly say it. He means what he says. And this is what he says in, in Isaiah 14, 24. And we can see this come to play later on in history. He says, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my hand and on my mountain trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulders. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his people. God's going to rescue his people. God's going to redeem his people. And what is he going to do? He's going to crush the Assyrians, this wicked, fallen people that won't repent, that won't turn to God. And is God just for doing that? Absolutely. Absolutely, because to have his love and grace and mercy, we have to have his holiness. And God cannot stand sin, church. See, that's where the problem lies, is this whole thought of sin and sinfulness. And we have got in our modern day, progressive day, whatever you want to call it, foolishness, we have gotten to the place where we kind of overlook and oversee and we're okay with certain stuff. All the while, we've never gone to God and see what he says, because he can't stand one ounce of sin. And so what does he do? He speaks out. He acts upon that. And he does what he does with sin. And he gets rid of, vanquishes, destroys, eliminates. The next thing I'd like to look at real fast just to read to you about God's sovereignty and his control and power is that no plan of man can happen without him allowing. Psalm 33, 10 says this, says that the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing and he frustrates the plans of the people. Who's ever made a plan and took it to God only to have him to kind of laugh at your cute little like little plan? Yeah, you laugh because you know it's true. Like, do we not do that all the time? Like in our prayer time, oh dear God, do this, this, and this, this. Your will being... We kind of tack that on last. Instead of, God, whatever your will may be, this is what I'm asking for, but whatever you see fit to do. And we take our plans and our stuff to him and ask him to just bless it and move in it and do something with it. All the while, that may not, that may not even be his intention to begin with, his direction to begin with. Proverbs 21, 30 says, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can have avail against the Lord. You just can't frustrate God. You can't, you can't aggravate him. You can't throw him off. The last one I would look at is this, as we start to kind of land the plane, is that no man, nation, or force can mess up God's plan. Uh, thank the Lord. Job 42.2 says this, it says, I know that you can do all things, this is Job talking to God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, upset, frustrated, messed up. No plan of God's can be like that. Well, because God is outside of time. God sees all things. God knows God can move and will and do as he sees fit. Isaiah 43, 13 says this. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. And who can turn it back? Who can change God's hand? Who can frustrate it or upset it? No one. Why? Because God is sovereign. God is in complete control. And all I know is that I don't want to be in control. As I said, I can't follow the sweet little voice on the screen with the blue line. I mean, why in the heck would you ever want me leading me if that's the case? Unless I'm tucked up under God in that place drawing strength and wisdom and direction from Him. That's the only way, any of us. And so those are just a few verses that just points to God's sovereignty, to His rule, to His reign, just to His, his control. And, and so, like I said, for some of us, that's a, that's, that's a warm blanket on a cold night. But for others, that's frustrating. That, that there's a struggle that smothers. And so I just want to talk to them for a moment just to the, the fact that, that maybe you're here and you, you feel like maybe you've been slighted by God. And, and I just want to do this. Just kind of just, whoever feels like, like, like maybe they've been slighted by God, and I'm raising my hand because I feel like I have. Maybe he, okay, he maybe missed something. 
Maybe he just overlooked. I mean, hands up. No, I want to keep my. I want. This is. All right, good. The rest of you just maybe haven't lived long enough yet. Give it a second, and and it'll it'll, it'll come. God's good like that. He don't want you to feel left out. But I want to tell you why I believe things like that happen. I want, I want to tell you why I, I believe that, that maybe some of that happens. And I want to look at it from two perspectives real fast. The first perspective is this, is from a lost standpoint. And, and what I believe is happening is, is if, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and life just keeps kicking you in the teeth and just beating you up and wearing you out, I guess what I look at that as is a good gift from God. Why? To, to get your attention. Why? Because God desires to rescue and save and redeem you. God loves you and cares for you. And God wants to do everything that he can to get you to a place where you'll trust him completely, where you'll fully depend upon him. I mean, think how horrific it would be that if if we had everything handed to us. I mean, everything went great through life. We never fell and scraped our knees. We never, we never had a bad day experience. We never uh, struggled financially. We never lost a job. We never had an argument with a spouse. We never had anything, a boss that ever disagreed with us. If we never had a, a kid that would disobey, if, if everything went perfect, everything, and then one day we stand before God in the judgment, and he looks at you and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. I mean, how horrific would that be that the God of the universe would do that, that allow you to go through life all peachy king and everything great and beautiful and, and, and never struggle, never have any issues to stand before him one day and think that you've made it and that you've accomplished and that you've done something. All the while knowing, never knowing that it's not you that can do anything. That it's all on God. That you're desperately, desperately in need of him. So what if in that moment... What God's trying to do is just get you to completely and fully to be dependent upon Him, to abandon yourself, your ways to His, and find true joy and security in Him. And so I believe that God loves you so very much that He will do anything and everything to get your attention and awaken you to the reality that you need Him. And if you see it or you view it as a sliding, it's only the hand of a good Father pulling you His direction. All I know is this, as a believer in Jesus and from a different perspective, for me, as a follower of Christ, in those difficult days of the soul, when you make it through it, and you're going to make it through it, when you make it through it, when you have the opportunity to look back and to see all that God did, all of his provision, all of his faithfulness, all of his love, all of his grace, all of his mercy, and when you're in the moment, and I don't want to take anything away from anybody in this room because I know that there's hurt and I know that there's pain and I know that there's struggle and those are very, very real. But all I know is in my experience is that when I get through that and I look back, I get to see the loving hand of God directing the whole time. God, God, God that was awful. Yeah, you're right, God. It, was, it hurt. That didn't feel good either? Nope. That's how I made it. That's how I got there. That, that, on that night that I just couldn't make it anymore, I couldn't take it any longer, I was ready to snap, or I was ready to go crazy, or I was ready just to leave, or be done with, or whatever. Uh, okay, so it was you, God, that, that helped propel me through that. All the while, he never leaves us, never forsakes us. And I think the second perspective is this, is, is kind of what I was sharing with you already, is that from a believer's side, the, the fact that God has rescued and redeemed us should just blow us away regardless of what comes after that. The fact that I have been saved, and I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, that, that, if, that if God never does another thing for us, church, he's done too much. That would have been a great place for an amen. And I know that, that wasn't like a cool, fun little statement to make right there, but if God never does another thing for us, I know that's horrible English, but if God never does another thing for us, he's already done too much in his son, Jesus. The fact that he would die for a wretch like you and me, yes, you and me, The fact that he would die for a sinful, rebellious people. I've got three little boys that I wouldn't give three little boys for anybody in this room, including me or my wife. Because I know us. Man, I know our struggle. I know our propensities. I know those things. And I wouldn't give those pure, sweet little boys, as fallen as they are, for not one person in this room, including myself. They don't deserve that. And to think the God of the universe killed his son for us? You need to hear how it happened. God kills Jesus for us. Because he wants us that bad. Because he loves us that bad. And hear me, church. There is nothing in us lovable. Nothing. But Scott, you don't know what I did this week. I held the door for granny. I don't care how many times you hold the door for granny. Your goodness. 
does nothing in comparison to the love and the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross, ransoming and redeeming us. Church, if he never does another thing for us, he's done way too much in his son Jesus. We've got to get our heart to that place. We've got to get our mind to that reality. See, I think the problem is we focus far too much and we love far too much the here now and we forget about the there and forever. I don't want to leave here. It's because you don't know what you have waiting for you if you belong to Jesus Christ. The only way that you should not want to leave this place is because you're going to spend eternity separated from him. Because trust me, there is nothing here that great that should want to keep us or warn us wanting to stay here for any more time than we have to. Because Jesus is that great. A.W. Tozer puts it like this. He says, when, who God will use greatly, he must wound deeply. Who God will use greatly, he must wound deeply. And so if you feel like maybe God has uh, abandoned you or slightened you, maybe he's just doing work on you to get you to a place where he can use you in a, in a big way for his glory and for his honor. Because what I've learned in my life is that nobody likes Scott more than Scott. And I am so full of me. I can be arrogant and I can be prideful and I can think things about myself and, and build myself up and I can make this life all about me and my wants and my desires and my longings and my comfort and, and on and on and on. And hear me, church, all of that is contrary to what Jesus has called us to be and do. Remember what I read in Corinthians? You've been bought with a price, you're no longer yours. Your whole life as a believer should be about bringing glory and honor to Jesus. And so what I've learned and what I know is this is I want him to have control and lead regardless of where or what that is. Because all I know is that when I'm left alone, I'll blow it. When I'm left alone to make decisions on my own or to lead on my own or do my own thing, I will mess it up every time. And so I want to be used wherever, however, whatever he needs to do in me to get me to that place. I'm going to trust him. And if God needs to cut me, man, you cut me wide open, God, because what I know about God is when he cuts, he puts back. When he cuts, he always sews up. And the good thing about it is he leaves that scar to remind us. You know what I'm saying? He leaves it there to remind us. God, you, you go down that road, it's going to hurt. Remember that cut? You know, as a kid, like when you would fall, when you do something dumb, your mom would say, now, Scotty, don't do that. But mama, Scotty, don't. And she'd walk off, and then what did Scotty do? Scotty did. And then what happened to Scotty? Well, he got his front tooth knocked out. Or he got cut on that. Or he almost got bit by the snake there. Or he... And what happens? There's always that little scar, that reminder isn't there. Hopefully, God does the same thing to us. Because he's wanting to use us and get us to the place where, where he can, can use us mightily for his glory. Mightily for his glory. All I know is this, is that God, don't leave me alone. Don't, don't let me be and lead and do on my own power, on my own will. Because all I know is that I will mess it up every time. And then to close out the verse, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. All I know is the fish was big enough to sustain and hold him for three days and three nights, just like God had planned, just like God wanted. And so Jonah had to learn that God's purpose was serious, that his power was unmeasurable. So as the band comes back up, that God's power was unmeasurable. I mean, how sweet this verse is in the midst of great disobedience and rebellion from the man of God. That God doesn't give up on him even in the, in the middle of that. I don't know what sin you're in or what struggle you have or how far gone you think you are, but, but, but Jonah had just went 2,000 miles the opposite direction, chartered a boat, put everybody's lives at stake, and God still goes after him. God still creates this fish for this purpose to do what he needs to do. Man, he'd just been hurled overboard and left for dead, so they thought. And the gracious God of the universe sovereignly over the special fish that he created. Man, I wouldn't want this story any other way. I don't know about you. I mean, I like the craziness of God. Like, I love the stuff that just doesn't make sense. I don't know about you, but why do kids get it? Y'all get it. We don't get it. Why do y'all get it? We don't get it. I want it back. But they get it. Like, their imaginations, like right now, my five-year-old is off the chart with the craziness stuff of God. Dad, see that son? I'm like, yeah, buddy. God's hotter than that. I'm like, you're dang right he is. I mean, why in the I mean, five years, why is he thinking about the sun and how hot it is compared to God's hotness? Hey, Dad, God's bigger than that building? I don't know, buddy, what do you think? Oh, God's so much bigger than that building. I mean, I love that. I mean, why do they even think that way? 
They even look at stuff differently like that. Man, man I love this. As crazy and far-fetched as it seems, it makes absolutely perfect sense in the heart of the believer. Yeah, God would do something to get our attention like that. Yeah, God would do the crazy to get a hold of us and, and, to, and to rescue and redeem us in that moment. See, the point of this is it points to God's power and his grace that he rescued Jonah even in the mist. See, church, the beautiful reality is that God, through a great fish, could sustain this rebellious prophet during this unbelievable circumstance and return him to the very place that God wanted him to go to to begin with. Oh, God, if you've got to swallow me up, swallow me up to get me where I need to be because I don't want to trek and go along without you. See, the belly, belly of this great fish is this. I mean, I, 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 it's, he gets to understand and see for a moment the weight of his disobedience. I mean, I couldn't imagine in this moment what's running through Jonah's mind. Well, crud. I mean, I could see myself going in some ways, but this big thing just ate me. I mean, God, you could have just let me drown. Got it over with. I mean, I can't can't imagine what's happening in his mind. So what does he do next? We'll see that next week. So to close, God provided a great fish. And in doing that, he shows his rule and his reign and his desire for his people. So I don't know where you're at or what you're going through, but all I know is this is that God ordained a fish to come after Jonah. Imagine what he could ordain to come after you. And what I know about him is he loves you enough to do it. He cares enough about you to do it. Well, because he has a desire for people. And there's two ways that you can view that great fish here as well as in your life. Is this, is it death, judgment, and desperation? Or you could view it as God's mercy, grace, and love. Church, what's your perspective? What's God doing? What God teaching? Where do you land this morning with your relationship with him, with his rule and his reign? Knows that he is a good, good father in love with his people for a reason that is beyond me because there's nothing in us lovable. But he chooses and his good character and his good nature to love. Father, help us this morning in this place. God, I pray you speak to hearts. God, I just ask that you move in a mighty, mighty way. And then we pray, amen. They're gonna lead us, you stand. If you need to come pray, if you need somebody to talk to, man, if we can do anything in the world to serve you, please do not hesitate to let us know. Me, Austin, we're here. We will count it an honor.